And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. That we can, and so help us God, we will make America great again. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the No Gimmicks Podcast. I'm your humble host, as always, Brady Leonard. Uh, episode 400. 400 episodes. Man, I can't believe you guys have been putting up with me for 400 episodes. I don't know what's wrong with you people. <laughs> anyway, I was joined by my friend Jim Garrity from National Review. It's always a great time talking to Jim, getting his per- his perspective on things. We talked about uh, the president's speech yesterday and, and all the latest coming out of Afghanistan, uh, the fallout there. And, and we even managed to... Uh, to uh, end the show on a positive note, believe it or not. Uh, before we get to Jim, guys, please, if you haven't already, follow us on Twitter at No Gimmicks Pod. Please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to subscribe. And if you are on iTunes, please give us a five-star rating and a good review. That helps us out, helps us move up the iTunes charts and all of that good stuff. And if you like the show and want to get involved, you can support us monthly over on Patreon, patreon.com slash the No Gimmicks Podcast. All right, without further ado, the great Jim Garrity. All right, guys, we're here with Jim Garrity from National Review. Jim, thanks for joining me for episode 400. Wow. First of all, Brady, congratulations on reaching that uh, milestone. I wish we had happier news to talk about. Usually you and I like to, you know, laugh quite a bit. And um, I'll be honest and tell you, like, I've these last two weeks have not been, they've been bad for the country. Uh, They've been bad for so many folks who've either served over there or worked over there or know people who've served or worked over there. Um, your listeners may or may not know, one of my readers is a uh, worked for a company that was working in Afghanistan for a lot of years. Contractor, a lot of construction type stuff. Um, and his company had thousands of Afghans that they knew are on the Taliban kill list now. Right. They work for the Americans. If you work for the Americans, the Taliban wants to kill you. Yeah. Um, so as soon as, you know, it was looking like Kabul, Kabul was going to fall, he's been trying to get his people out. Uh, one of which, and the one that's really kind of sticking in my mind at this hour is one of them is a U.S. green card holder. Now, as your listeners are a well-educated audience, they probably know that like that, that's all it's process morally and, and legally. There's very little difference between a green card holder and a citizen. A citizen can right. vote. That, that's just about it. Right. Um, most green card holders are on the road to citizenship, or this is like the last step before you take the uh, citizenship process. Yeah, in, in terms of anyway, travel, I, I really guess you know I'm doing. I'm, I'm ranting already. So, oh no, no, you're good. <laughs> you're good. No, so I mean, we have to start with uh, with Joe Biden's speech yesterday, obviously. So, I mean, after all of this, the 13 Americans killed after going back to the Obama greatest hits of drone bombing some kids. Um, after admitting uh, he left hundreds, maybe thousands of Americans behind in a war zone. Joe Biden still felt that it was wise to take a victory lap yesterday. Um, pretty incredible stuff. Um, I, I look. I the audience knows I had an extraordinarily low opinion of this president before, uh, but these last few weeks really revealed the depths of his uh, depravity and cynicism. Yeah, I look at the end of it. I, I think throughout this entire process, Joe Biden was convinced he was going to get all the troops out by September 11th, 2021. And that was going to be his victory. And that was going to be his grand accomplishment in the history books. And I'm sure he expected to be able to have some sort of grand ceremony on September 11th this year 
boasting that he was the president who finally ended the Afghan war. Um, and, you know, there's been this really frustrating straw man argument of, um, oh, you know, the alternative was to stay there another 20 years or people who uh, who are criticizing him now are you know people who never wanted to end the war. Look, I, you know, Brady, I've seen your, your tweets and you and I might not be on exactly the same page here. Right. But I think we, you know, I, I can definitely can say, yeah, 20 years, all that blood and treasure. It was, you know, there was time to make the Afghan government stand up on its own two feet, which, by the way, apparently it was utterly incapable of doing. Right. Um, but the question, uh, you much would have preferred a conditions-based withdrawal instead of a deadline-based withdrawal. And the recognition that, you know, uh, uh, all of this seems to have been predicated on this idea that we would have months and months right up and, you know, to, to get this done. Um, and that, you know, July 8th, Joe Biden goes out in front of the country and says, you're not going to see the, the Taliban taking over the whole country. You know, and he says, I have faith in the Afghan armed forces. They're best trained, better, better equipped um, and have uh, more competent on the battlefield. Now, while that was happening, the Afghan army was getting its butt kicked right. uh, all over the country. You, you could see and like for the last for the six weeks or whatever, you know, four or five weeks between Biden's speech on July 8th. And the fall of Kabul, I kept would periodically check on the headlines from Afghanistan and one other province or another had fallen to the Taliban. And I was like, the president's assessment has been completely wrong based on this. And admit, you know, immediately in that Stephanopoulos interview, he said it was an intelligence failure. I've heard a lot of people say that when a policymaker screws up, his favorite his favorite go to excuse is to blame the intelligence community because the intelligence community can't fight back. They, they can't, <laughs> you know, but. You, it wouldn't be great if Avril Haines or uh, Burns or somebody came out and actually we informed the president that it was ready to fall in a matter of weeks. The president is lying. Wouldn't that be terrific to see? But they can't do that. They serve at the pleasure of the president. And so I, the, the intelligence community often is the universal scapegoat. Uh, you know, and even if even if Biden, you know, let's assume the intelligence community completely botched this because I'm irked at them with the uh, their research into the origins of COVID-19 right now. Um if you picked up a newspaper, you could see that the Taliban was advancing very quickly. And it just feel like the entire administration was caught completely flat-footed. And then Biden had the audacity to go out there tomorrow and say, we were, yesterday, and say, we were prepared, we were prepared. He really wanted a victory lap based on what has been this absolute disaster. That, that, you know, in a sheer, in a matter of weeks, one of the world's most brutal and malevolent factions is back in power just in time for that 20 year anniversary of 9-11. The humanitarian crisis is off the scale. A country's worth of women are you know, now back into hijabs, back into oppression. Uh, there was a report I saw that said, we've lost about 90% of our intelligence capabilities on the ground. Biden's whole pitch is that we, one, we can do this, we could do this because Al Qaeda is gone. And it's not. Al Qaeda leaders are coming back out in public and celebrated as they return to their villages and stuff like that. Uh, the State Department went out and said the Haqqani Network and the Taliban are separate. And the Taliban spokesman had to actually say, no, <laughs> we are one and the same. We are united. There is no distinction between us and stuff like that. Um, everybody was monitoring Islamist chat sites and, and all these. They're saying the Islamists around the world are thrilled. This is their best day, happiest day since 9-11. Um, God knows how many American citizens and green card holders are stuck behind Taliban lines. Our allies get, are and we're, we're going to get to that point in just a second. Yeah, sorry, I'm, I'm just ranting and ranting. Oh, no, 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 no. no I, I, I want to save that for just a second, the actual number sure. of Americans, because it just doesn't, to me, I can't square what the State Department said 
mm-hmm. before with what the White House is saying now. But like all of Joe Biden's arguments have been straw men. But the the I I take it personally the, the straw man argument. Oh, the only people criticizing me are these war hawks or, or yeah, war bombers. They're, they're know, all yeah. like just like John McCain or whatever. And it's like. All right, I, I'm I'm fairly certain that a president Ron Paul would have at least, I don't know, withdrawn the civilians and our allies first, or or maybe you know not left 85 billion dollars worth of high tech military equipment to terrorists. Like come on, like I don't get. You can be a complete non-interventionist, and, and like mm. I I'm pretty close to that myself, and still take issue with everything about how how this is done. And I I just it, it's fascinating seeing the transition from the press this morning i mean they're actually buying president Biden's yeah. line from yesterday which which is the most nonsensical thing i've ever seen like i'll sum up his speech yesterday with this was a tremendous success and it's all donald trump's fault <laughs> so it's yeah. like, i mean it's like imagine if we had a critical press if imagine if we had a free press by the way i, I checked to see what cnn is talking about this morning jim they're talking about january 6th oh good yeah, so, the commission because so think... that's that's fresh in people's minds and you know <laughs> I, I guess I should be glad they haven't, you know, the 18th straight day of Ron DeSantis is the devil or something like that. But, um, you know, I, I was thinking, about, first of all, to give credit where it's due, for about two weeks, the large sections of our national news media, including CNN and places like The Washington Post, have been absolutely brutal on Biden, deservedly so. You can't help but wonder how much of that is shaped by news organizations that have been covering, first of all, they've been covering Afghanistan for 20 years. So they, this is an, this is not an obscure topic to them. This is not something they can be easily spun on. And for the administration to give happy talk when you've got CNN reporters on the ground who can give you visual images, you know, like Amer- Americans are never going to forget the image of the guy falling off the landing gear. Americans are never going to forget the image of, you know, desperate people clinging to the side of the air. Like how desperate must you be to say, I'm going to hold on to the landing gear and hope for the best. Apparently, there's some kid who was on the, you know, on the national soccer team or something like that. Like, you know, it is just one of those utterly infuriating. But I was thinking about like the, but yeah, it does feel like a, flick, a switch has been flicked. I think they recognize that like, if they continue on this, well, at some point this will start affecting Democrats in the midterms, and we can't have that happen. You know, that that's that's the worst case scenario. But it, I was saying this in an email to somebody. Watching the transference of this, you know, this is an egregious series of missteps by the president to it's Trump's fault. It's the Afghan military's fault. It's the fault of Americans who decide who didn't, you know, get out of the country earlier. When you have two people you interact with and you really like one of them and you really don't like one of them. Um, and all, all these examples I'm going to give are hypothetical. I like all these people, but let's say you have a brother you love, but you think your sister-in-law is a pain. I think my sister-in-law is terrific. Just, you know, uh, just in case. Sure, you're listening. sure, sure. Yeah. Uh, you have two friends, your best friend, but your friend, you have a friend of a friend who just thinks is a jerk and you just don't understand why your best friend likes to hang around with this guy. Um, or, you know, a boss, you, you love your boss, but the boss's assistant is an, you know, suck up who you think is always giving bad ideas. Right. The human mind likes consistency and predictability, right? We, we like it when the people we like do good things and the people we don't like do bad things. And when it doesn't go that way, um, there's that famous headline, heartbreak, the worst person you know just made a great point. Right. You know, it, it kind of, it throws us for a loop when when somebody we dislike makes a good point or when somebody we like completely fumbles the ball and we want the world to make sense, Right. So what, you know, the brother, if your brother does something stupid and you don't, you're like, well, his sister-in-law must have put him up to that. 
right? It must right. be her fault in some way. Your your close friend who's just, you know, blew you off. It must be because that jerk, you know, put him up to it or something like that. Uh, your boss's terrible decision. It must be the it must be the assistant influencing him. Some way. we figure out a way to transfer the blame from people we like to people we don't like because it's just much more com com comfortable. Because otherwise, we'd have to recognize maybe we don't really understand the world as well as we do. Maybe the people we like aren't as good as we think they are, and maybe the people we think are bad are not as good as they are. And I think after about two weeks, the media has recognized, oh crap, Biden might not be, not only, you know, we, not only did we spend 2020 telling you how great this guy was, how he was going to restore stability. He was going to restore our alliances with NATO and all these other, you know, huh. we, all of these, yeah. oh God, maybe the critics were right about Biden. The guy who was supposed to replace Trump and bring order back, it's just a different kind of chaos. But like, that's, that's just too big for them. They just can't, you know, that would, that would have to force them to rethink so many things that are the foundation of their worldview that they're retreating and figuring out some way to say either it's bad or we're just not going to think about this too long or, you know, hey, look what happened on, on January 6th. You know, it's time to go back to more comfortable uh, topics because really confronting what's happening in Afghanistan has become too morally uncomfortable for them. Right. They'd have to actually practice journalism, and I don't mm. think that's something they're willing to do. But I want to, like, like I mentioned a second ago, help me help me square the numbers. And this is not, we're not even talking about green card holders or our Afghan allies, which obviously mm -hmm. those people, uh, we had an obligation to get them out as well and failed. But, I mean, the State Department originally said the number of American citizens, um, disregarding everybody else, just citizens, were, were over 10,000 in Afghanistan. The White House and the Pentagon say they evacuated a little over 5,000. So I'm not sure how they come up with the quote in the low hundreds, unquote, that they keep throwing around. Of yeah. Americans that have been left behind. I mean, I, obviously that number is probably far higher. But like, regardless, I, I can't imagine celebrating leaving any American citizens, whether it's 300 or 3,000 or, or whatever, in a war zone. <laughs> I mean, like, I I have to assume any Republican president would have been immediately impeached for that, and, and probably removed from office by a bipartisan vote. Um, yeah, you, you the the just you don't have to be a Republican to be mad at the way. The administration has handled this and regard you know, the first thing is that if you know again afghanistan is not france i don't expect the u.s embassy in france to know how many people how many americans are in the country at any given time right afghanistan that's a little bit different afghanistan say at the beginning of the year recognizing that they're fighting an insurgency that the taliban were getting strength you would have liked to have thought that at some point in the past eight months or so even if you think the Trump administration was full of incompetent people who didn't know what the hell they were doing and didn't care, and the worst ever, blood, fine. Okay, Starting January 20th, Biden's in charge. He gets Blinken in charge of the State Department. You would have liked to think that somebody might have said, hey, we should probably have a good and current and updated list of how many Americans are in the country in case we need to get them all out. I, I just can't believe that this was not something that um, was just unthinkable to everyone. Unless everyone was echoing that that Biden comment on July eighth, this is not going to the Taliban is not going to take over, and the Afghan army is going to be fine, and all that kind of stuff. Um, I mean, Jim, it, Jim, the, the writing the writing's been on the wall. Yeah. Sorry to cut you off, yeah. but I mean, the, the writing's yeah. been on the wall that we were leaving Afghanistan for several years. Yeah, I mean, the fact that <laughs> the fact that they didn't have a list of of citizens and green card holders and people to evacuate. I mean, God, I mean, the 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 deal was signed. That the Trump deal was signed. What a year and a half ago. Mm -hmm. I mean, my, my goodness, the fact that there were no preparations made, there was no plan. I mean, it's not like this snuck up on anybody. My goodness. Yeah, I, I guess that's the thing, that recognition of 
even if let, let's say, you know, after that July 8th press conference, you know, it was beginning of August when you started seeing the Taliban really starting to pick up province after province. And it was one of those, again, at that point, did anybody at the U.S. embassy in Kabul say, hey, we should put together an updated list of who's in the country and where they are and figure out, like, like they, they, they keep bragging about how many, how many warnings they sent. Now, somebody yeah. pointed out that they've also sent warnings to U.S. citizens in Switzerland and lots of other places. You know, like the idea that, you know, these warnings, I get the, you get the feeling that most of these people just shrug and ignore these warnings. Um, you know, that, that could, anyway, so maybe that 10,000 to 15,000 we heard at the beginning of this, maybe that was a wild overestimation. Maybe they'd missed people who'd left the country in the preceding weeks and uh, fine. Okay. Um, maybe it is only a couple hundred as the administration is saying. I'm not completely this way the accounts i'm getting from my reader who's trying to get his people out and he's pretty much passing along directly verbatim sometimes in some cases the emails or the, the communications the texts and stuff like that it just doesn't match what no. the administration is saying and, and like they keep saying like you know like i'd like to get there but the taliban the, the, you know, i can't get past the taliban checkpoints to get to the airport and the biden and keeps saying the taliban is letting people through that wasn't the case at all no like you know, and so you end up with this. Look, we've been talking about, you know, boy, Biden's gotten older. Biden's lost some speed on his fastball and stuff like that. Uh, you just kind of wonder how mentally he engaged he is and how, you know, he, you can brief, you can brief, a pre you know, because I was during the previous presidency, you can brief a president. That doesn't mean the information gets absorbed and, and gets into his mind and affects his decision making. Yeah. I mean, so you kind of left there wondering, you know. Yeah, I, I want I want to go there too. And honestly, Jim, it, it's been encouraging. Uh, I, I was encouraged to see you talk about Biden's mental state in the morning jolt last week. Um, the guys over at Commentary wrote something similar. Um, it's not just radicals and crazy mm -hmm. people like me <laughs> who, are, who are talking about this anymore. You know, you you guys at NR are openly discussing um, Biden's illness, um, which, and I think it's important. Um, I mean, the man is clearly unfit. He, he's clearly suffering from from something, whether it's Alzheimer's or dementia, something like that. I mean, this this is the reason why he's several hours late to all of his press conferences. Well, I, I guess speeches. He doesn't really talk to the press. Yeah, um, he, he barely does his questions. When he does, you get stuff like, it was four or five days ago. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, this is the reason why, like, this is the reason why he avoided speaking to Boris Johnson for 40 hours. 40 hours. It's yeah, not because that, he was that, being that, a jerk. It was because he was having a bad... Alzheimer's Day, and he probably couldn't speak. I mean, this is the reason why his public appearances are all in the afternoon. Typically, especially in, on matters like this, uh, a president would address the nation at eight, you know, in, in prime time, eight or nine Eastern, um, when when most people can tune in. And if you have, like I have, um, spent time with an elderly family family member with dementia, I had a grandmother passed away a couple years ago who who suffered for dementia for the last couple years of her life. And, and if you spent time with these people, you understand what's going on with Joe Biden. You understand yeah, just... that evenings are rough. They, they tend to break mm -hmm. down in the evenings. In the afternoons, they can hold it together a little bit better. And then as the day gets late, they uh, they, they really struggle. And some days are good days. Some days are bad days. I mean, so I, I know we're supposed to pretend <laughs> like we don't notice the, the, this, this painfully obvious truth. But uh, I'm not pretending anymore. I don't think anybody should um, in, in right-wing media and conservative media. Um, I mean, th this man is clearly impaired. He's clearly he's, – he's cooked. I mean, his goose is cooked. I, I, don't, I, I don't think it's, it's worth anything to, to ignore th this obvious truth anymore. I was going to say, what really made me want I – mean, people could say, oh, how can you not know this? Or, you know, look, look, we all knew 
Biden was, you know, uh, between the last time we saw him as vice president in 2016, 2017, and when he reappeared on the campaign trail in about 2019 running for president, he looked like he aged a decade. Oh, yeah. He, he was not, you know, you could, could have said, oh, Biden, he's young, old back then. He, he's, he's old, old now. And he had some of those, he got through the debates well enough. He had this very unusual circumstance with the pandemic where he didn't need to do a lot of in-person events and stuff. Um, but what kind of jumped out at me where you're really like, okay, something's clearly wrong is um, he made no public, you know, when Kabul was falling, Biden did not make any public appearances for, for four days. Yeah. Right? Then on Monday, he took a 20 minute speech off a teleprompter and took no questions. He immediately returned to Camp David. He had no events on his schedule that Tuesday. The Wednesday, he gave another 20-minute speech. This one was about vaccine boosters. So it was, you know, really not about Afghanistan. Took, again, took no questions. Now, later that day on Wednesday, he did the on-camera interview with George Stephanopoulos that really didn't go well, right? And his kind of indignant tone, that was four or five days ago, you know, like. Um, and this is again, George Stephanopoulos, Jim. Well, well <laughs> this is a Clinton like, fixer. I mean, this is it was his job to yeah, drag okay, Joe just, over the finish line in that interview, and he still couldn't do it. Yeah. Um, and then, as you mentioned, the the you know uh, the, the the very delayed phone call to Boris Johnson, and in a ten day span, he had two phone calls: one with Johnson, one with Angela Merkel. So, whatever the president was doing, it was not phone calls with foreign leaders. Um, and then you kind of look at it. There are a lot of days where the president does not have any public events on his schedule. And then there are days where he does. And, you know, most often he does not take questions. And when he does have to take questions, that doesn't go well. Right. So, you know, is it Alzheimer's? Is it dementia? You know, Brady, deep down, I have no idea. But the simplest answer is that this is a man who's, you know, come and turn 79 in a couple of months in the toughest job in the world. The most, you know, one of the most stressful jobs in the world. And he's old and he just it involves an enormous amount of mental and physical pressure. And he just you know, in a situation where I think anybody would be losing sleep and anybody would be under really high stress, except now he's kind of buckling under that stress. And he goes out there and he kind of has this glassy eyed look in his eyes and he just doesn't look like a man who's on top of everything. And the fact that he can't go out and do lots of events and the fact that he's not um, able to. The other thing is also about yesterday's speech. It was very weird how he was angry and defiant and almost shouting Brady during a national call for prayer. <laughs> Some like something's just you know something's just off about him. He just yeah. you know is and, and you know my my sneaking you know this this look. Let's assume physically he's he's not got dementia. He's not got Alzheimer's. He's not got anything like that. He is a man who has basically decided before he went to the office, that he was going to have all U.S. troops out of Afghanistan by September 11th. And he really expected to be applauded for that. He really expected to be remembered as a great president because of that. And now it has all turned to ash. It has turned into an absolute, you know, foreign policy disaster that we're going to be dealing with the consequences of this probably for years to come. Yeah. And, and that'd, be, that'd be tough for anybody, right? Now, Biden has never been, you know, some people would argue the sharpest knife in the drawer. And all of this vaunted empathy that we keep hearing about, I'm not sure Biden is as somebody else shared a really smart observation with me. They said, you know, look, Biden talked about his personal tragedies and there was kind of this idea that because he talked about them, he had to be this empathetic guy. When in fact, what it meant was that other people are sympathetic to him, like the, the direction of it is going in the wrong direction. And it just yeah. is this. There's always been this prickliness to him going back to, you know, I bet I have a higher IQ than you do, you know, and, you know, 
was that a dog va- dog face pony soldier or whatever dog, it was. Dog fa- <laughs> yeah. One of one of my fantasy football teams uh, this year is named the Lying Dog Face <laughs> Pony Soldiers. By the, by the way, <laughs> look, it it was I, I think the most troubling thing he said in the speech yesterday was when he I mean he was yelling the whole time. I think prickly is a pretty generous <laughs> assessment of his behavior, but he he was he he was yelling the entire time, and, and he appeared to blame the American citizens that have been left behind directly for not getting out of Afghanistan. Well, we we emailed him seventeen times or, or something along those lines. That's sickening. <laughs> I mean, I mean, like like you said, I mean, you were hearing reports of of. American citizens and Greek card holders being stopped by the Taliban from even getting to the airport. Um, imagine blaming the people that you left behind for not getting out. I mean, what what a, I mean, what a disturbed that that, what a wicked thing to say. Mm. Oh, my gosh, I mean that is that made me sick. I'll be honest, that that made me absolutely sick. Yeah. So one of, in today's morning jolt newsletter, the, the the best part of my job is that every day I wake up. And whatever, you know, the National Review gives me a very long leash to write whatever I want to write. So very often I I will wake up with a question in my head and I get to go and do as much research as possible to answer it. And, you know, hopefully send it out and hopefully it ends up in people's email boxes at a reasonable hour. And uh, what I wanted to know was like, so who are these Americans who are still in Afghanistan? I know about at least one of them, the green card holder I've heard about from my reader. Um, he is a, uh, Afghan born guy who, who apparently was just whiz with computers. You wouldn't necessarily expect great, you know, computer whizzes to be coming out of Afghanistan, but he worked right. for the U S companies over there. They sponsored him, got him a green card. He passed all the security checks and all that kind of stuff. And when 2021 began, he, he was living in Maryland sometime in early August. He could see the handwriting on the wall. He could see that the, uh, Taliban was advancing. Oh, sorry. I should, I should go back and say he's married. He has six children. Uh, his wife's parents did not want them moving to America. And so he came to America to make money and was sending money back to the family. And that's how things are operating. It sounds like for a couple of years. And then he sees, oh God, you know, the Taliban's coming. So he goes back to Afghanistan, gets to them. and was trying to get the paperwork to get all of them out of the country because he has a green card, but not necessarily the wife and the six kids. And then Kabul fell. And then all of a sudden, the U.S. State Department was operating, you know, out of the airport on a shoestring and then all that kind of stuff. And he's hiding in Kabul. He managed to get close to the airport. He did not manage to get through any of the gates. And as of the last communication I've had with my reader, he's he's somewhere in Afghanistan and he and his family are going to have to try to figure out some way to get to the border. With a lot of Taliban checkpoints between them, them and the border and never knowing which Taliban guy at a checkpoint is having a really bad day and just wants to shoot somebody. That's his circumstance. Now, theoretically, because he had a U.S. green card, he could have gotten back and he would have left his wife and six kids in Afghanistan run by the Taliban and never known if he'd ever see him again. I don't begrudge this guy for not leaving. Jesus Christ. Of course. I mean, you know, talk about talk about like, you know, just like putting you know, a gun to somebody's head and saying, well, either you can leave and you can live a, a you know, relatively happy life in America but your wife and kids, you know, stay and God knows what the hell's going to happen to them under the Taliban. Or you can stay here in the Taliban and they'll try to kill you, too. That's the situation this guy's in. So like the idea that, oh, oh, this SOB, why didn't he heed the State Department warnings? Jesus Christ. Come on. Yeah. Um, so I, this morning I just gathered as many stories as I could. Apparently there's like 24 kids who are in the Sacramento area who are still. But generally, these are Afghan-Americans. Generally, these are people who have family back in the country. 
and went back at various points this summer because they wanted to visit their relatives. I, I was just thinking about this actually, Brady. Do you remember like was it Uber or one of the other ride sharing services that ran a commercial about a guy from Afghanistan? That's right. Yeah. And he talked about how Uber gives me the flexibility so that I can go back to visit my family every summer. Yeah. Apparently, this is this is like you know, Afghan Americans do this, and like you know, any immigrant family, you leave everybody behind. I, I can't begrudge this. And then if you find out the Taliban looks like they're going to gain power, you go back this summer. Like it might be the only the last chance you ever get to see your relatives. And yeah, you know, we're going to sit there and we're going to say, "Oh, you dumb schmucks, why didn't you leave the country earlier?" Like apparently, also keep by as of July eighth, you know, Biden was saying that's fine. The Afghan army is going to hold. So you know, we've got. Yeah. So anyway, the, but it's worth noting the U.S. The New York Times says today, uh, immigration and refugee advocacy groups estimated that thousands of permanent legal U.S. residents are still in the country. So, so don't get this idea. Oh, you, you notice the administration loves to emphasize U.S. citizens. They don't like getting into the green card holders. But anyway, I mean, there's legally there's speaking, green card yeah. holders have the exact same right to travel to the United States as American citizens. Yep. And at least there's, according there's, you know, the Af- U.S. embassy in Afghanistan said that U.S. citizens and green card holders were their priority. There was no distinction. There was no, you guys are second class. There's no sense that you're not a priority. You know, um, it's, it, you know, we, we left people behind by, by a policy decision because Biden wanted to be out by a certain date. It's, that's where things stand. One more thing. Uh, I, I want to mention the political ramifications here in just a second, but what, one more thing. And I, I actually didn't even put the guy's name. I, I forget his name in my uh, show notes, but I, I've been reading every every few days. I'll will see a report um, about the the former vice president of Afghanistan. I, I for the life of me, I can't remember the guy's name, who uh, did not leave and has been rallying. Um, yeah, I guess what was formerly the Northern Alliance, a lot of uh, what is left of the Afghan army in the north, and has retaken a town or two and is still putting up a fight and refuses to leave and all that. Um, obviously, the, the median age in Afghanistan is something like 18. <laughs> it's one of the youngest countries in the world. Um, so there is a generation of men mm. that have never lived under Sharia law, never lived under the Taliban. And and, uh, and, and this man, I, I think, is Sela his last name? I, I can't I can't remember his name. But have, have you, right. I, off the top of my head, I don't have it handy, but yeah. Have you heard anything about uh, his efforts? Uh, I mean, it, it looks like uh, they will be able to put up some kind of resistance to the Taliban in the coming months and years. Yeah, I was thinking it was the, give me a moment as I'm checking the New York Times, because they did have an update on this. Um, they're going to have, one, it is good to know that there are some uh, Afghan men who are willing to stand up and who are still willing to fight, and who do not want to give up their country. Um, they have a very long and difficult road ahead of them. Although I kind of wonder, like the Taliban, apparently it's, you know, like the vast majority of their forces are angry poorly educated, in some cases illiterate, young men from small rural villages brought up with very traditional Islam who who are kind of signing up for, you know, adventure and a sense of driving out the foreign infidel, right? You know, um, that's much easier to do than to run a government. And I think there was the, you know, UN food program says that basically in two months, Afghanistan's out of food. So if you think situation's bad now, just wait a while, right? The Taliban, you know, the Taliban aren't known for their economic development, right? The yeah. Taliban aren't known for figuring out how to provide basic services. I think apparently they want to transform themselves into a Hezbollah type where they do enough, as one person described it, they they do enough donating to the uh, widows and orphans funds that it gets them off the hook for all the w- orphans and widows that they create. Um, but basically the idea of, you know, the kinder, gentler Taliban that wants to 
uh, you know, they, they want to pitch themselves as this. I, I think they're probably going to collapse on that. And you're going to have a whole bunch of people who never liked, you know, who did not like them coming to power in the first place, who will be hungry and angry and fed up with this. So right. that really sounds like more of a formula for chaos. But it also kind of indicates that I don't know if the Taliban, certainly the Taliban is not going to have an easy time keeping control. And I don't know if they're a safe bet to stay in control um, six months from now, a year from now, two years from now, something like that. Well, we made it a lot easier for them by giving them something like $80 billion in military equipment. And we're talking yeah, about arms <laughs> exports might be there. You know, uh, somebody else said— 360,000 yeah. 360, M4s and M16s, 33 Blackhawks, Chinooks. C-17s, night vision equipment. I mean, <laughs> drones. I mean, my goodness. They, we, we gave them enough weapons to, to make them a regional power. I mean, it's, it's incredible. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I keep hearing people saying they don't know how to operate it. Well, okay. I'm sure they can get a lot of Russian and Chinese visitors who can figure out how to operate it so much. Yeah. If they were, if, if, you know, if they said that they really did disable the, uh, uh, the, the vehicles, terrific. I, I have a hard time believing they disabled all of those vehicles that highly, were out there. Highly unlikely. I, I have a, you know, the Taliban, look, some of this stuff, you know, body armor, night vision goggles, weapons. I mean, it, you know, like they're going to figure out how to use rifles and stuff. They're not, you know, they're, they're not savages in that category. So the, I, I really feels like a lot of whistling past the graveyard on the idea that this isn't going to do it. So first of all, arms trailing. And then I, I keep hearing the administration talking about the economic leverage we have over the Taliban as they take over <laughs> in Afghanistan. And so you're thinking like, yeah, I, I think it was Dan, my former colleague, Dan Foster, who had this brilliant, you know, succinct way of putting it. In fact, the U.S. government may make the major export of Afghanistan illegal. Take that. Of course, it's poppies and opium and heroin and stuff like that, you know. Gosh. Yeah, what are we going to do? Are we going to do what we did the Iraqis in the 90s, blockade the entire country and starve women and children to death? That'll show the Taliban. <laughs> yeah, you know. My, my goodness. There's no way we're going to be able to get humanitarian aid in there without greasing the palms of the Taliban. Biden's team is banking. You can tell the political strategy moving forward uh -huh. to the midterms. They're banking on the voters to forget all of this. To they're, they're banking on their friends and corporate media to propagandize to the voters, to keep people distracted. Um, they think in a few months it'll all blow over and they'll just be back to COVID and, and whatever else. Do you think they're right? That's a really good question. Um, I think two things will work against them. Clearly, look, Afghanistan is not going to dominate the news cycle the way it has for the past two weeks. That much is certain. And, well, you know, we'll other see. events. We'll, are, we'll see if we hit, you know, a, a 1979 type uh, hostage crisis. But yeah, I mean, that would be a 20, yeah, 30 times worse, potentially, you know. Although you kind of wonder if just the the nature and culture of newsrooms, right, it, it, you know, for, for probably feels like ancient history to people. And even I was, you know, real little during those years. But like 1970, like that's what gave birth to the, the to Nightline, uh, Ted Koppel on ABC News, right? This right. idea of like it was important enough to ABC News that these people not be forgotten, right? Because like it was more than a year. Like you, you can't. Yeah. You know? And so it turned into this um, this drumbeat, right? That the, the news media felt this obligation for these people, knowing that the nature of our culture and the nature of our news environment was for people to move on. Except if you're stuck there in some, you know, former U.S. embassy in Tehran, you don't have the option of moving on. Well, we've got thousands of uh, Afghans who helped us, who are now facing execution, who are probably, you know, facing being tortured to death. 
It'd be nice to see if this became a moral crusade that Americans did not forget. I, you know, I think it's this way for a lot of veterans. I think it's this way for everyone who's been organized in these private efforts to get these people out. Um, I, it's not going to be as front and center in the news media as it was. I, 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 the other thing I kind of wonder about, um, if you're the administration, like the, the, administ you know, the administration is also dealing with a border crisis. The administration is also dealing with inflation concerns. Yep. Um, the administration is also like, but as I you know wrote in a piece yesterday, remember Biden saying, I'm not going to shut down the country. I'm not going to shut down the economy. I'm going to shut down the virus. Well, it's September 1st. We still have a lot of cases. This is, you know, heavily on the unvaccinated, but we're, we're not out of this. So it was looking like in, in June or early July as the administration's biggest talking point and biggest reason to brag isn't looking so hot. Yet schools still closing across the country because of cases in their community. We're still waiting on a, on a vaccine for kids. Uh, you know, like, the, so the, the, the possibility of the administration, like, at some point you can't stop, you, you can't, there are limits to how much you can spin. And a lot of this administration has been trying to polish a turd for the past couple of months. And I just think at some point, even a really sympathetic media um, may, may, may reach its limits uh, with this. Again, I don't know if it'll turn into Nightline. I don't know if it'll turn into this like major drumbeat of stories. But uh, I, I do think at some point the American people can tell when things are not going the way we're supposed to. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I think uh, the, the corporate press will try. But that is a heavy lift. I mean, facing yeah. all, all of the, the I mean, crisis that this administration's facing, that would be a heavy lift. But we're gonna they're gonna try. I mean they're gonna they're gonna do the, the COVID fear stuff. They're gonna you know, they're gonna try to beat January sixth to death and all of this. The, the Republican you know, all the all the actual scandals will be, you know, Republicans pounce, you know, which you saw you saw some headlines uh, with with Republicans mm -hmm. pounce, Republicans seize, all of that. Um, Republicans pounce on Biden leaving thousands of Americans behind. <laughs> it's like, okay, nailed it, guys. That, that, thank you. Really, you hit the nail on the head there. But um, I, I think you're right. I think there's too much, too much here for for them to 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 spin it. Jim, uh, I know I have to let you go. We're over time as always. But uh, I did. Uh, I wanted to end the show on somewhat of a positive note. So a few things I noticed this morning that uh, are cause for a little bit of optimism here in Texas. Uh, a couple great things went into effect today. They, their six-week abortion ban and constitutional carry both went into effect today. Uh, your home state, the Virginia governor race, is a uh, real clear politics average has it within five points, which is actually um, a little surprising to me. It looks like that could actually be a race coming down the home stretch. And even though he hasn't officially announced, uh, Sununu is up eight points over Hassan in New Hampshire in that potential Senate matchup. So I just thought I'd end the show with, with just a few uh, tidbits of good news um, to, to leave, uh, to leave with the audience today. We definitely needed it. And you know what I'm going to actually, I'm going to, I'm going to share something that's completely unrelated to anything in the news, Go for it. but it just happened yesterday and I've kind of been interesting. Uh, I've been tempted to tell somebody, um, at the end of, so, uh, my younger son was selected more or less against his will to be part of the school bus safety patrol where you get a little sash and you get to, you know, be the person who helps the little kids get on the bus and all that kind of stuff. He's in uh, sixth grade, and he didn't want to do it, but basically he says they gave him a sash and said, congratulations, you're on the bus, you're on the patrol. <laughs> he's the oldest kid at the bus stop, so I think that's probably why. Yeah. So um, he's being asked to – so yesterday was like the first day of he's doing it, and he's like well, – I, I, I walked him to the bus stop, and I was like, you know, you got to put your sash on. He's like, look, we haven't trained us yet. I, I, don't, I don't feel right. Fine, fine. 
Um, so I'll be able to get somebody. So during yesterday afternoon, they start giving them their training. And it's very, you know, super duper basic, you know. But as they're doing the school buses departing the school, Brady, I kid you not, apparently a bus breaks down right in the middle of this like little loop that they're supposed to do to line them up. <laughs> and of course, so they're, they're all of a sudden, all, and of course, the school buses are parked, you know, or, or are driving really, really close. They don't have an accident, but one can't move, and the rest of them are all in this very narrow loop, and they have to do it. It was apparently the most chaotic effort to get the bu- the buses backed out and get the kids onto the right buses because they're not in the usual spot. On his first day, he got thrown into the greatest safety patrol crisis of all time. <laughs> it was kind of like, you know, the movies where, like, you know, the cop on his first day has to deal with the hostage crisis situation or something yeah. like that. But he got through it, and it turned out okay. And uh, it was just, so I was very proud of him. And it just provided this perfectly funny story. And it wasn't quite um, Kevin Smith's clerk's. I'm not even supposed to be here today. But there was a little bit of it. This is my first day and we're dealing with broken down buses, you know. But uh, he, he said, I was talking to my teachers. And, and you know, in his mind, he's like, they're talking to me like I was a peer. He, he was in the he was in the loop of people, what was going on, and how they're going to get the kids out. So I was very proud of him. It's like the sixth grade version of like the first episode of a season of 24. There you go. Exactly. We've got the buses. <laughs> no, I don't have time to explain. Open a socket, Chloe. Yes. <laughs> Open a socket. Oh man, I can still I can hear the the phone ring, the dial sound from 24 in my head right now. That unmistakable sound anytime a phone rings in those offices. Jim, where can everybody uh, subscribe to the Morning Jolt, which I highly recommend, and uh, check out your podcast and read all your stuff and follow you online and all that good stuff. Sure. Uh, on Twitter, I am at Jim Garrity, J-I-M-G-E-R-A-G-H-T-Y. Um, NationalReview.com is where you can find almost all my stuff. Very often, right in the corner. Uh, you go to National Review Newsletters, they should give you, uh, it's actually, uh, that's right, okay, I'm sorry, go to the homepage, left side of the aisle, it says, you know, National Review Newsletters, it talks about subscriptions, I write one, we have other ones, Kevin Williamson is a very good one, um, you know, but you can pick and choose which ones you want, you don't have to sign up for all of them, um, and, uh, you know, I, I have a Facebook page, which is just mostly posting the the art uh, articles and stuff, and uh, that's it, that's, that's where you can find me, and uh, at some point I'm going to desperately need a vacation. Yeah, I hear that. Everybody follow Jim. He's great. That's all I got for today. I'm Brady Leonard. I'll be back on Monday. No gimmicks. Um.